This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 20,000 policy reports and commentaries. Well, good evening. Welcome to everybody. This is the 10th Albert P. Williams Jr. Memorial Lecture on Health Policy, and I'm delighted to see uh, so many old friends. We have a lot of alumni back today, but uh, I'm delighted also to see uh, new faces as well. For those of you who are new to RAND, I'll say a little bit about uh, RAND today. RAND is a nonprofit, nonpartisan institution that aims to help improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. We have six offices uh, in the United States, around the country, and three offices overseas. But you're here at our home in Santa Monica. And among other things, this is the site of the Pardee Rand Graduate School, which is the world's foremost doctoral program in public policy. It's uh, not only the uh, school that uh, is developing the next generation of policy leaders, but it, it in many ways acts as a think tank within a think tank. At RAND, we're dedicated to ensuring that the most important problems, and by that I mean the problems that affect the most people, the problems that involve the most uh, public resources, uh, ensuring that those kinds of problems are solved on the basis of rigorous evidence, the best evidence available, the best data, the best lessons from history, the best analytical methods, and so on. We tackle a broad array of policy challenges. I'll give you a few examples in just a moment, but all with the goal of making people around the world safer, more secure, healthier, and more prosperous. So I want to just take a moment and single out some of our attendees because we have today the chairman of the RAND Board of Trustees, a rare event for us here in Santa Monica, Karen Elliott House, uh, who's there. Uh, Leonard Schaefer, a trustee you'll hear from in just a, a second, and, and a very uh, important uh, long-term member of the RAND family, Susan Rice, is here with us as well. We have numerous members of our health advisory board, in, in fact, actually too many uh, for me to, to, uh, to list by name, and many other uh, members of the RAND policy circle. And the people I just singled out are all donors to RAND, and uh, they're important to us because philanthropic support allows us to tackle problems that are often too complex uh, for our traditional clients, like the full societal impact of the opioid crisis, uh, or problems that are too distant, like what it uh, means and what it will take to be safe and secure a generation from now, or too controversial, like gun policy, or uh, problems that actually have all of those characteristics like the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life, what I call truth decay. Rand, Rand is able to tackle those problems because of the generosity of our donors. And so if you're a guest tonight and you're not yet a member of Rand's Policy Circle, I hope you'll consider joining the rest of us uh, in our fight against truth decay. Uh, the way to do that is to talk to one of my colleagues with a purple badge tonight. Now, Al Williams, I want to turn to Al Williams. Al was a distinguished economist and research leader at RAND, and he embodied and demonstrated the rigor, the objectivity, and the dedication to the public interest that are fundamental 
uh, here at RAND. Uh, you will find more about Al's career in the program, uh, but briefly, uh, Al came to RAND in 1968, and he stayed for 32 years. Uh, he came to work on international economic policy, but as often happens in RAND's multidisciplinary environment, he quickly veered in another direction. And in the early 1970s, he took the lead on a, a series of innovative studies of medical school economics and quickly established himself as one of the leaders in what at the time was a brand new uh, health sciences program here at RAND. Uh, in every organization, I think you'll know, there are a few people who are more than just uh, top performers. They are uh, people who possess and uh, demonstrate the human qualities that make them especially well-respected and especially admired and especially loved by their peers throughout the organization. And Al Williams is one of those people uh, here at RAND. He helped make RAND um, one of the world's foremost sources of research and analysis on how health services are used and delivered and financed. And under Al's leadership, RAND took on um, one of the largest, most innovative uh, social science research projects I think ever attempted, uh, the RAND health insurance experiment. I think it still remains the only long-term experimental study of, uh, of health cost sharing and its effects on the use of care the quality of care, and most important, on health. So this lecture series, the Albert P. Williams Memorial Health uh, Lecture Series, was established in 2000 uh, after Al passed away through the generosity of his friends and colleagues uh, here at RAND. And the purpose was to commemorate his legacy first and provide a forum for innovative and creative thinkers uh, of the day. And we're honored to have actually two of Al's sons here today. Albert III is here uh, with us again tonight, and also John is here. And I haven't seen her yet, but I, I think Albert's uh, wife, uh, Gay Rose Williams, is, is here as well. So welcome back to RAND to the Williams sons. So now it's my honor to introduce another member uh, of the RAND community uh, who's made a lasting mark on our institution, and that's uh, Leonard Schaefer. Uh, Leonard is a long-serving member of the RAND Board of Trustees. He's also a member of our Health Advisory Board. Uh, he's had a distinguished career that spanned the public, private, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors so far. He, in fact, delivered the Williams Lecture himself in 2014, and we'll introduce tonight's speaker. So, Leonard, welcome. Thank you, Michael, for that very kind introduction. I'm very honored to introduce the Albert Williams Laureate for 2018. Speakers are chosen to give the Williams Lecture because they demonstrate the same values of objectivity, rigor, and dedication to the public good as did Dr. Williams. Fortunately, there is no height requirement, so I was asked to give the lecture <laughs> in 2014. This year's speaker is my good friend, Dr. Ezekiel J. Emanuel. Dr. Emanuel is both an empirical and conceptual researcher who is passionate about translating his work into public health policy. Although he's widely recognized as the architect or one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act, his work has actually been quite diverse, impacting healthcare costs, end-of-life care, bioethics, and the physician-patient relationship. 
Dr. Emanuel received his MD from Harvard Medical School and his PhD in political philosophy from Harvard Medical School, and as you'll see, is continues to be a show-off. <laughs> Uh, he is now the Vice Provost for Global Initiatives, the Diane S. Levy and Robert M. Levy University Professor and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Previously, he was the founding chair of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health, and during the Obama administration, he served as special advisor on health policy to the director of OMB and the National Economic Council. He's published wild, widely <laughs> and wildly <laughs> on health reform, bioethics, and end-of-life care. His most recent book, Prescriptions for the Future, identifies exemplary medical organizations. He's also a contributor to the New York Times and CNN, so you may have read him or seen him uh, uh, before. Uh, he is also the 2018 recipient of the Dan David Prize in Bioethics, which comes with a gigantic cash award. I couldn't believe this. Um, and uh, he, he was honored in recognizing his innovative and interdisciplinary research. Now, I would be quite remiss if I did not also tell you how lucky we are to be able to hear Dr. Emanuel's thoughts in this, the 61st year of his life, as he plans not to live beyond his 75th birthday. I am not making this up. <laughs> Zeke's rationale for not living beyond 75 was elegantly explained in his catchily titled article in The Atlantic, quote, Why I Hope to Die at 75. I don't know how he got in here, but that's what he did. Okay. I have to admit, however, that uh, Zeke is a lot better at planning for the future than I am. Years ago, I told my children that I did not want to be a financial burden for them, and therefore I would pass away before Medicare ran out of money, which at that point was in 2049. <laughs> Medicare is now scheduled to go broke in 2026. So both Zeke and I don't have much time left. I sincerely hope that Zeke's family and friends convince him to stay around a bit longer than his publicized uh, plan because there are lots of things he wants to do and lots of things he's good at doing, and he will continue to have, I know, a very uh, serious and important impact on our health care policy. So as crazy as he is, here is this year's Albert Williams Laureate, Zeke Emanuel. <laughs> Well, I have uh, known Leonard for about a decade now, and uh, it's one of my great honors when he says he's coming into Washington and I get a chance uh, to cook breakfast uh, or dinner for him. Uh, uh, he's always, as you uh, know, entertaining, insightful about current politics and other things. And I use a clip he once made in 1979 uh, about the power of the ability to predict the future. And if you haven't seen it, I should have shown it at the start of this lecture. Uh, it's from 1979, and Leonard predicts uh, social networks, large databases, mining those databases for insight as to what people will do. And he ends that little clip by saying, and people make a lot of money at that. <laughs> and I always tell my students, Leonard was very prescient, but made no money in big data. <laughs> so... Um, 
I'm going to talk about drug prices. Uh, it's a topic that we didn't uh, address. Uh, there are two very small provisions that have had no effect on drug prices in the ACA. Um, but I, of course, like to begin with money, uh, since it focuses everyone's attention. Um, and I like to begin with the uh, amount we spend on health care. Um, in 2016, the last uh, year for which we have uh, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services official numbers, uh, we spent over $10,000 per person in the United States uh, on health care. Uh, the 2017 numbers are out, due out in about uh, three weeks. Um, it's a huge amount of money, uh, much uh, larger, 30% larger than the next uh, highest country. Um, how much does the U.S. spend on prescription drugs? Well, 17% of those dollars, uh, which amounts to 3% of the total GDP, just go to drugs. Yeah, wow is right. That's a huge amount of money just for uh, drugs. Um, this is actually the number. Uh, the whole world spends about a trillion dollars on uh, drugs. Uh, roughly half of that's the United States. Uh, you know, we're less than 5% of the world's population. We pay uh, 5%, uh, 50% of drug costs. We're basically double. Uh, we spend twice as much as Europe. Uh, as I like to say, uh, it, it, here's the per capita cost. Uh, you can see the United States is way up there at $1,443, and the next highest country is Switzerland at under $1,000 uh, per person. Um, so I now, at this point in the lecture, have to protect myself. So this is my memorial song, Kettering Disclosure Statement. As you can see, I have a serious conflict of interest. Uh, <laughs> I have done speeches for a lot of drug companies. I talked to a lot of CEOs of drug companies, but I have a lot of stock in drug companies, which will go down at the end of this speech. So <laughs> I'm well protected. I don't know what my interests are, so I'll just go on. All right. The key issue in all that spending on drugs is not the number of drugs we take in the United States. We are not an outlier in terms of the number of drugs per person in the country. So if you think that costs are price times volume right? It's not the volume problem we have. It's the price problem. Uh, and that is best seen by slides like this. Uh, this is from my colleague, uh, Peter Bach, who is at the Memorial Sloan Kettering, but is perfectly uh, willing to disclose his uh, conflicts of interest. And what he's looking at uh, or plotting here is uh, the monthly price of cancer drugs on the at the time that they were approved by the FDA for marketing exclusivity. And what you can nicely see here uh, is that from the 1965 roughly to the mid-1990s, uh, introductory drug prices were about $100, uh, going up to about two or $300 uh, uh, per month. And then beginning in the mid-1990s, prices just shut up so that now uh, the introductory uh, Prices for drugs are uh, nearly $15,000 per month, between ten dollars and $15,000 per month on average. Uh, huge, uh, substantial increase, basically uh, over 25 years, a uh, uh, two orders of magnitude increase. Here's one good example. Humira is the best-selling prescription drug in the world, $18 billion in annual revenue. Uh, by AbbVie, um, and uh, on the bar graph, uh, you can see the prices charged in the United States compared to Britain, compared to uh, Switzerland, were basically 
twice as expensive on a monthly basis compared to uh, Great Britain. Um, and then you can see it's not just the price. It's also the fact that once a drug is introduced, the price keeps going up and up and up. These are list prices because we don't actually have access to what the sale price is on average. Um, that's a well-kept uh, secret. Um, I recently calculated uh, if you take the Cost in the healthcare costs in the United States, which are $10,300 per person, and you look at the next series of uh, very high-cost countries, Switzerland, Norway, that delta, the delta between our costs and their costs, a third of that difference is drug prices, which swamps any other cause for the difference in healthcare costs between us and Europe. It's much more than the number of MRI or CT scans. It's much more than the excessive doctor salaries uh, and things like that. So drugs are very, very substantial portion of the Delta. Um, indeed, over the last uh, six years uh, at Medicare, um, the proportion of total spending in Medicare uh, that went to drugs went from 17% up to 23%. A uh, you know, just under uh, 33% increase because of high costs of drugs. And uh, if you look down to the future uh, and uh, you believe the CBO, at least they're not going to be, or uh, I mean, excuse me, the Office of the Actuary, not going to be wildly off, but drug prices are slated to go up 6.3%, much higher than overall healthcare costs in general, which are slated to go up between 5 and 5.5%. 5 .5%. And in particular areas, Inflammatory conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, cancer, and diabetes are anticipated to go up at 20%. So continued high, high increases in costs. And if you look even further down the line, uh, this is what you see. This is a table I made uh, after discussions with uh, leaders in uh, cell and genetic uh, therapies in the first three cases. Uh, there are uh, th uh, three different companies working on he hemophilia gene therapy, recent article in the New England Journal that actually if you do the gene therapy, uh, you get the blood clotting factor way up. It stays up. It looks like it might be a cure, uh, forestalling the patient's need for hospitalization and to receive uh, a transfusions of clotting factor. There are 20,000 patients. Uh, the word on the street is that this therapy will cost between $1.5 and $2.5 million per patient. That's right, per patient, Right. The total hit on the health care uh, bill will be between 30 and $50 billion, and that's for 0.007% of the population. It's going to raise drug spending 10% for 0.007% of the population. Uh, by the end of 2019, multiple myeloma, which is the largest um, blood cancer uh, in the United States, 30,000 patients per year. CAR-T, this new treatment of Im taking out immune cells, re-engineering them and putting them back in the uh, patient, being used successfully for other lymphomas and for pediatric ALL uh, by two companies, um, Gilead and Novartis. Uh, cost is 373000 just for the treatment, uh, but with attendant hospitalizations that you need, et cetera, it's over 550, closer to 650. Uh, that will raise $11 billion for just 0.001% uh, of the population. So you can see. Now, I also want you just to think, we've had eight drugs fail for Alzheimer's disease. Once we're going to maybe get a drug for Alzheimer's disease and say it's not a cure, but just postpones the illness for a year or something. Right? We have 5 million 
people right now with Alzheimer's disease, uh, if we charge a mere $20,000 a year, right? By today's standards, cheap drug, right? That's $100 billion. It's 20% of all drug spending, right? Can't happen, but that's what the future looks like. Now, all this high spending has a somewhat distortive effect on priorities, research priorities. Companies look to either invest in drugs that have these high prices or drugs that are very low risk for getting FDA approval because they can be fast-tracked. They uh, target a rare orphan disease. Um, here's what the average drug costs now for cancer is about 140000 per year. Antibiotics, ones that have been recently approved, Drug companies are lucky if they get $1,400 uh, per course of treatment. That's a hundredfold price uh, difference. Um, uh, and uh, the consequence is pretty clear. We've got 650 or so cancer drugs being researched on, and we've got less than or we've got 51 antibiotics in clinical trials. Even though 2 million people a year in the United States get infected with drug-resistant bacteria, and 23,000 a year die from them. And the CDC has put dr developing new antibiotics for drug-resistant uh, conditions at the tippy-tippy top of its public health uh, agenda. But we're not, no investment because, you know, you can only sell it for $1,400 per course, not 140000 And this is what the consequence looks like. So I mentioned CAR-T, $373,000. Right? You put that honeypot out there, and you get all these companies looking at CAR-T treatments. 400 trials. Okay? People go where the money is, right? So that's a quite distorted. We don't need all that CAR-T and no antibiotic research. That makes no sense. Why do we have these high drug prices? Well, if you ask the drug company executives, they can give you a long list, but they basically boil down to these two arguments. Drug research is really expensive, and drug research is really risky. Are they right? Is that true? Well, I would say each point is specious. I would use a stronger word, but I'm in public company. Uh, here is a, uh, uh, the, the senior head of all pharmaceutical research for J&J &J saying, finding a balance between an affordable price on the one side and a favorable revenue for a pharmaceutical company on the other is essential so that future medical innovations can be developed. All right? So we need to have this large prices so that we can get fair revenue for companies so that they can innovate. That's the logic. I want to stress that he uses the word fair revenue, and we'll discuss the rest of the back end of my lectures about what that fair means. Um, but that's – the research costs are not actually the reason we have high drug prices. This is a slide, again, produced by Peter Bach from Memorial Sloan Kettering. He took a look at the top 20 selling drugs, and he said, given the U.S. prices and volumes compared to the European prices and volumes, how much are drug companies getting for that extra higher price in the United States? On the, just the top 20 drugs, not hundreds of them, just the top 20. And he calculated it's $116 billion. And then he said, well, how much is worldwide research by every drug company anywhere in the world? $76 billion. So they're making a lot more money on the top 20 drugs than they're spending, all of them are spending on research. He concluded the pharmaceutical companies generate 176% of their global R&D from U.S. premium 
pricing. They got more than enough money to pay for all that research. The premium pricing is not just to pay for that research. Another argument, a reason you ought to be suspicious of that claim that they need a lot of profits and high prices for research is this slide. Now, I just, what's today? Today's Thursday, Wednesday? Yesterday, I gave my students this slide. They had a hard time interpreting it. So I'll explain it to you and why I like this slide. The uh, drug companies are in the orange, right? These are all the, uh, these are t- the top 20 companies in terms of research uh, spending. They're all over $5 billion a year. And you can see of the top 20, five of them are drug companies. But the top company spending more than $20 billion a year is Amazon. Well, what is Amazon famous for? Low prices and no profits. So we need high prices and profits to do a lot of research, but Amazon has low prices and no profits, and it does a lot of research. Something is wrong with this logic. The second thing I pointed out to my students is just going down the list, I say, well, the number four company is Volkswagen, right? And then, by the way, there's Daimler and Toyota and Robert Bosch and Ford and BMW, car companies. Last I looked, car companies are not that profitable, right? Their profit operating margins are under 10% and many of them are under 7%. And there are more of them on that list than drug companies. So where's the logic? We need these high prices. We need these high profits to pay for research. But then again, one should actually look at the data. After all, we're here at RAND. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, to develop a new drug, it's two, two and a half billion. Where did they get that number? Well, they got that number from the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development. And they periodically conduct a study using drug company data and tell us that it's two point whatever billion dollars. This is the latest one from 2016, is the publication. And if you disentangle that number, it turns out that about $1.4 billion are the actual spending on the research, you know, working with people conducting the trials. And $1.63 billion of it is the cost of capital. Now, what's wrong with these numbers, right? You might just take them at face value unless you read the article. If you read the article, the first thing you want to do is, uh, as a dear friend of mine from college said, consider the source. Go to the Tufts website, and you will realize that they are simply an extension of the pharmaceutical industry. They're a contract resource organization for the pharmaceutical industry, and about a quarter of their budget is donated by the contract research organizations that work for the pharmaceutical companies or the pharmaceutical companies, and the rest of it are contracts from the pharmaceutical companies. The second is they say that that price, that $2.6 billion dollars is a result of analysis of 105 drugs from 50 drug makers. And by the way, we can't give you the data because it's proprietary, confidential. Trust us. Well, why should we trust you? you know, I mean, it's, there's no reason. And then if you actually look at the paper that they published, uh, they use a uh, cost of capital number for that 1.16 roughly 45% of the total, uh, that's 10.5%. Now, I am not in the for-profit business, unlike Leonard, right? I do not know what the cost of capital is. But I have friends who know what the cost of capital is. So I called a very former student at uh, BlackRock, and I said, what's the cost of capital? And he says, I don't know, but there are guys who deal with the cost of capital all the time down the, the hall. So they say, well, you know, there's this site at 
the U.S. Bureau of something or other, uh, and you look. And if you look at the cost of capital that they publish over the last decade, the cost of capital has been between 5.6% and 6.4%. So I took an average number of 6%, and I said, hmm, if you actually use that number instead of the 10.5%, turns out that you reduce the total cost of spending, that one change by $600 million, 25% drop. And finally, the Tufts number never considers the many tax credits and other financial incentives the federal government gives to drug companies to develop their drugs, the tax credits they give for developing orphan drugs, for example. So it's not a very good number. But I grew up in a time when people said you can't fight City Hall without something, right? It's hard to disprove a number with nothing. So you need something. But until recently, we haven't had that something. And then some researchers published uh, last year in JAMA Internal Medicine a study They used transparently, publicly available data from the SEC and tax filings. They were able to attribute all research costs to one drug because the companies had only one drug on the market. And they looked in cancer, which has these super high costs, supposedly. And when they looked at 10 drugs, uh, they found out that the cost of developing these 10 cancer drugs on average was $648 million dollars. Only two of the 10 did it cost more than a billion dollars to develop the drugs. It took seven years to develop them. And in all but one cases, 90% of the cases, they earned back their money within a few, the research money within a few years. If you add the cost of capital at 7%, it raises it to $757 million, substantially less than the $2.6 billion. So the idea that it's all research we need it for, not true. There's other factors involved. Marketing. If you look at all the top 10 companies, all but three of them spend more on marketing than they spend on R&D. Merck, Roche, and Gilead are the only three companies that spend more on research than they do on marketing. Pfizer is a big winner here, not the biggest, but a big winner along with Johnson & Johnson, spending a lot more on marketing than they do on research. But the fact of the matter is, Even the drug company execs, when they're not in front of the public, don't believe that it's research that's driving high drug prices. So this is a quote out of the New York Times. It said, we all look at each other and keep pace with each other's prices, said a director of one multiple sclerosis uh, drug company who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Honestly, there's no science to it. But even more directly, Greg Rossi was on a panel at ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and he said this about how they established prices. He's a VP at AstraZeneca. We do not solve for the, the, for the price of a drug on how we basically return our investment. We don't solve for the price based on how much we've sunk for research costs. We solve for price based on a number of factors associated with the market and value. So research has nothing to do with it. That's just a smokescreen. The second main argument is that drug development's risky. 90% of drugs that enter human clinical trials fail. That is true. That's just a fact. That's the number. But it, as Silicon Valley has taught us, it's very important to know when you fail. Failing early, very cheap. And that's true in the drug business too. So there are typically three phases to research. Right? Phase one is safety trials, tend to be small, under 100 patients. Phase two, does the drug actually do what it's supposed to do? Lower the cholesterol, lower the blood pressure, whatever else it's supposed to do, make hair grow. Right? And phase three is, 
a randomized trial compared to the best existing treatment or placebo? Well, phase one, you can see, yeah, about 40% of the time, drugs do fail, right? But they're cheap trials, $25 million. Phase two fails 70% of the time. Again, cheap trials, $60 million. So yes, it's risky, but it's not that expensive if you fail early. And finally, how risky can it be? You guys are making tons of money. At the end of 2017, collectively, the top 25 pharma companies reported a healthy average operating margin of 22%, which increased to 25% if you were the top 10 pharmaceutical companies. Let me just say that's a lot more than Amazon is making. And for the top 10 pharmaceutical companies, it's more even than Google and Alphabet, right? They're making a lot of money. How risky is that drug development business game going for them? Can't be that risky. So why are drug prices so high? Real simple explanation, right? The federal government gives drug companies a monopoly through patents and FDA marketing exclusivity. And what do companies do with a monopoly? Both economic theory and lots of empirical data say you give a company a monopoly and they're going to raise prices until raising the prices will reduce their margin. That's just the way the world works. And what do we do in monopoly situations? Right? We regulate. And by the way, monopoly in drugs are even worse than monopolies in, say, electricity or telephones. Why? Physicians don't know the cost of drugs when they prescribe them. As a matter of fact, they might actually make more money when they prescribe a more expensive drug, as my oncology friends do. And second, patients never pay the full cost or almost never pay the full cost, right? They get substantial reductions off those $10,000 a month drugs, right? And so they don't weigh, realistically, the costs and the benefits. Every other country in the world regulates drug prices, typically through some formal process of negotiation. Only we don't. So this asks us, if we're going to regulate drug prices, what is the price of a drug? When is it excessive and unjust? Remember the J&J executive who said, we need a fair revenue? Okay, what is fair here? What's the fair price of a drug? What's fair revenue? Why should we even be talking about fair prices? Right? We don't talk about fair prices for a car, fair prices for a restaurant meal, fair prices for smartphones, right? But we do think there should be fair prices for drugs. That's because drugs prolong and improve the quality of life or at least decrease our side effects. Like food and housing, many but not all drugs are basic goods necessary to lead a decent life. Excessively high prices for basic necessities, such as drugs, are unjust because they represent a kind of price gouging, exploitation, right? If someone's drowning out in a lake and you come up and say, you know, I'm willing to save you. You just got to pay me $100,000. It's called exploitation, right? How different is that from drugs? Someone's dying from cancer. I'm willing to save you $140,000, please. Because society, rather than individuals, largely foot the bill for these drugs, this is sort of exploitation magnified, right? We exploit, the drug companies are exploiting our sense of fellow feeling. We won't let someone die but for the price of a drug, so we pay for it through insurance or government programs. So how should we, if we want to negotiate drug prices, establish a fair price for a drug? How should we think about it? Well, there are lots of ways that have been proposed, production cost model, comparative price model, reference price model. I'm not going to go over them. This gives you a sense for what the problems with some of those are. This is 
all the different countries that actually rely on the British system of price. They look at Britain. What's Britain charging and will do something similar, right? Uh, so everyone relying on Britain doesn't seem like a real good model for determining what's fair. How do we know the British know what's fair? So I want to go back to first principles. As Leonard mentioned, I have a degree in political philosophy, and so I like to think of, of uh, ethical principles that would underlie our reasoning. I think that there are four principles that we ought to think about. And by the way, I would suggest that almost everyone in the room would largely agree with these principles. The first principle is what I call the complete life principle. When we think about justice, fairness, right, the benefits and the costs, should be considered over a whole lifetime, not just a narrow time frame like a year. Right? That has been typical ever since Aristotle in thinking about justice. We assess a life over a full lifetime. Has that person received just benefits? The second principle is the limited resource principle. And again, pretty common sense. We value many things in life and want to ensure that we can live complete lives to pursue whatever our interests might be so we must allocate resources to a wide variety of activities and interests, right? We can't just spend on one thing, all our money on drugs. We have to spend on lots of things to lead a full, rich human life. There's the value principle. We have this intuition that we should pay more for something that gives us greater benefits and health. If something cures us, we should pay more for it than if something merely prolongs our life for four weeks, Right? Pretty common sense view. That's how most of us go out and buy things in the world. And then there's the comprehensiveness principle. Both the positive and negative impacts of a treatment on a person's education, their employment, social interactions, other valuable life activities ought to be considered when we look at the costs and benefits. We don't just look at health. If a drug can allow someone to go to school, not in special ed uh, classes, that would be pretty valuable to everyone. Now, I want to say if you think about these two principles, or four principles, you get two standards that ought to guide us in thinking about when drug prices are excessive. One is the value-based standard, VPB in the literature. This has actually been commonly articulated, and I'll go through it. The other has never been articulated, and it's sort of my contribution here, which I call the average lifetime earnings standard. And I want to argue that you need to fulfill both these standards together to determine what the fair or just price of a drug is. So what's the value-based pricing standard? That really takes cost-effectiveness analysis, something Rand is very familiar with, probably does 50 times a day, to determine the value-based price using either qualities, that's quality-adjusted life years. Value-based pricing has been used by many other countries. Uh, Great Britain uses it, Australia, Israel, and uh, scholars looking at like the global burden of disease use it. And it fulfills the value principle because it says, you know, the more benefit you get, the more you should be willing to pay for a treatment. There's lots of disagreement over cost effect in this analysis, and I have no time to go through them now. Some people argue it disadvantages older people because they don't have as long left to live. Some people say it disadvantages people with disabilities uh, because it doesn't value their life the same way. In the drug area, the main criticism is, well, what's your threshold? How many dollars per quality-adjusted life year are you willing to have? Traditionally, we have used $50,000 per quality. 
Uh, that's been used for a very long time, which is roughly one GDP, per capita GDP in the United States. Our per capita GDP now is about $55,000, so it's round about one uh, GDP per capita. Um, arguments by the World Health Organization and some other health policy people says, eh, we should go up to $150,000 uh, per quality. That's what we should be willing to spend. Um, I think that's excessive for a lot of reasons, but um, there's a lot of people who argue that. Interestingly, some economists who've looked at healthcare trade-offs, what are we actually willing to do in real life, uh, say that, well, you know, if you look at trade-offs, we're willing to spend closer to only half a GDP, $25,000 per quali, uh, nowhere near uh, the $150,000. Obviously, this threshold makes a huge difference. What it turns out is that for many cancer drugs, you know, we're 150,000 is nowheresville. They're at 250, 350, uh, 350,000 per quality. Now, this value-based uh, pricing uh, notion is relative. It captures only part of our concerns about high drug prices. It ranks drugs relative to each other. It says nothing about the absolute price of a drug, or more importantly, the total amount society might spend on that drug. Take the Alzheimer's drug that I mentioned at 20000 That might turn out to be cost-effective, but spending $100 billion for 5 million people, 1.3% of the population, might be too much. It might be unaffordable. And we saw this a little bit with the Zavaldi case. That's the drug for hepatitis C, where they were charging $1,000 a pill. It was cost-effective, it turned out, actually, even at $1,000 a pill. And yet there was tremendous public outrage that it was unaffordable. And in fact, still to today, 99% of uh, prisoners in in, uh, prisons in this country of hepatitis C have not been treated with it because it did prove to be unaffordable to a large segment of the population. So um, I want to say, let's think through the affordability side. And I begin thinking with this number. Anyone have any idea what that number is? It's a very strange number, $61,372. Leonard, Leonard? (laughs) That, for your knowledge, is the median household income in the United States in 2017. On average, households in the United States, not in this room, households in the United States, $61,000. Okay? It's a sobering fact. When you talk to drug company executives, it shocks them, of course. You know, they have gold cufflinks, Gucci shoes, you know, Paul Stewart suits. It's very hard for them to understand living on 61000 But that's where half the American population lives below that. All right? And then I think about this number. Anyone know what that number represents? That is the lifetime earnings of an American male with a BA. Lifetime earnings. All right? Now, I want to put that into context. We've got drugs at 140,000, regular cancer drugs. We're now talking about treatments that are $2.5 million. But the lifetime earnings of someone with a BA, a male with a BA, is... Just 2.27. How can you charge more than the lifetime earnings of someone for a treatment? So that gets me to thinking of the average lifetime earnings standards, which says that the cumulative lifetime drug costs can exceed some number, all right, where that number has to be less than $2.27 billion, million. In fact, 
I would say it has to be less or a small fraction of what you might consider disposable income. So let me work it through. Think about those lifetime spendings. Again, remember the complete lives principle. We consider justice over a whole lifetime. So take average lifetime earnings. Take away the necessities, food, clothing, transportation. Take away raising a child. Take away educating that child or college, right? That leaves you with something we might call disposable income to spend on vacations, entertainment, alcohol, right? Books, libraries, whatever else you want to spend on that isn't a basic necessity, right? Now, drugs has to be some part of that. Can't be all of it. Can't even be all of the disposable income. So here's the calculation, right? Take average lifetime earnings, subtract average cost of basic necessities, subtract average cost of raising a child, subtract four years of public college, not even Harvard, you know, UCLA for in-state students, right? That gets you disposable income. Well, how much of disposable income ought to go to drugs? I don't know, but I'm going to give you a very generous estimate. 31% of disposable income is lifetime medical costs, okay? That's just calculated out. That's what it is, all right? Let's add 10% to that. So we got a high number. Take lifetime medical costs. 17% of lifetime medical costs I showed you, right? That's lifetime drug costs. Add 10% to that. Anyone argue that that's a pretty high number? Higher, right? So if drug costs exceed this amount, you would say, eh, excessive, unfair, taking too much money. Well, how much is that? If the average lifetime earnings is $2.27 million, it's a lot less than you think, right? Let me, by way of adding to the suspense, just note that the average lifetime earnings fulfills the complete lives principle because we're considering the whole lifetime earnings. It also fulfills the limited resource principle. We can't spend it all on drugs. We got to do all this other stuff, raising children, educating them, right? Spending on other things. Life would be boring if we didn't have a vocational interest or some entertainment. This is the number, 70,715. And that's the high number with those added 10% in. I'll just take you through the numbers here, okay? I know you're interested. It's Rand. We're always interested in numbers. (laughs) All right, 2.27 million. Here's the cost of raising one child. This, by the way, is the average, not for the upper middle class, which is closer to 400,000, 233,000. I knew you knew that, right? So I didn't show it up there. It wouldn't be unfair. We didn't embarrass Leonard, right? Um, Food, 243,000. Housing, almost 800,000, right? Transportation, 300,000. I've left off clothing. I've left off cell phones and the internet. And in the modern world, who would say they're not necessary, right? Raise your hand, please right? Education, right? Public college, 80,000. Private college is on average 181. Harvard, for the next four years, $274,000. We're not going there, right? We're doing, okay? Disposable income. This is 640,000 over a whole lifetime. This is why drug company execs can't relate to this, right? That's their one month salary. Okay. Lifetime median medical expenses, that's 41%. That's the high number. It's 261000 over a lifetime, right? And then if we add the high 27% of that for drugs, we get to the 70000 figure, right? We're talking about drugs for cancer, 
at twice that. We're talking about cures for hemophilia, exceeding the lifetime earnings of people. All right. I'm just going to emphasize this is an extremely generous threshold. We're using the median income for American males with a BA working full time. Let me just say, women earn less than men. We all know that, right? Just 33% of the American population has a BA or higher, uh, adults has a BA or higher degree. So two-thirds of the population are going to be on the downside here. And only 40% might strike you, it struck me as surprising, of workers actually employed full-time, full year, right? Most people cobble it together. All right, so that's a high number to begin with, the 2.27 million. And all Americans, I want to say in this, we're going to use the same standard for everyone. So we're not going to say for the disabled person we're spending less or for the person who has a lower paying job we're spending less. Everyone's going to get the BA level treatment. It's also generous for other reasons. It excludes large families, one child, right? Calculates with a historically low inflation rate of only 2% for basic necessities going forward. And it assumes a very high expenditure on drugs compared to other medical services. So what are the implications if we take that number? And I hope I've persuaded you it's not a crazy number. And you'd have to argue it should be much higher to me. And I'm not sure how you would do that. So first of all, as I've said, the value-based pricing threshold and the average lifetime earnings standard work together. If either is not fulfilled, the price of a drug is unjust. The standards consider the affordability of drugs from the perspective of the average person, not from the perspective of doctors or insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies or the government, but the average person earning over a lifetime $2.27 million. The unjust price for a drug is lower than many of you probably thought coming into this room. Now, annuity pricing. So a lot of these companies that are developing these new hemophilia treatments or CAR-T say, look, they're high cost. Let's spread the cost over 30 years. Well, all that does is spread the cost over 30 years. It doesn't bring drug prices down. The issue is how to bring them down. The average life expectancy standard implies that the fair price of a drug is socially relative. So if you go to a country that earns more than has a higher earning than the United States, the price should be higher. But if you go to Egypt or India, where the average lifetime earning is lower, the price of drugs ought to be lower. I think that tiering is ethical and fair. Finally, you might say, there's no reason why this ought to only apply drugs. That kind of analysis can be applied to every other medical intervention. Seems to me those principles hold for all medical interventions. Well, let me conclude with considering common objections that I hear, or imagine I hear. Having society determine a just price or fair price or when drug prices are excessive is a kind of price controls and disrupts the market. And I say, yes, you got it right. But there's no market in drug pricing. The idea that there's going to be a market is absurd, right? We grant them monopoly power through patents. We then have third-party payment. Where's the market, right? Every country that gives a monopoly to drug companies does something to negotiate the prices. There is no free market. That's someone's illusion. Second, setting a just price for a drug will change incentives for developing new drugs and thereby limit innovation. There is no doubt it will change the incentives. It's supposed to change the incentives, right? Cost, drugs which are no longer cost effective won't be developed. Correct. Whether it reduces innovation, who knows? At 25% profit margin, 
we can knock that off a little bit, as I showed you, and still have high levels of investment. That is a different discussion. They need to think about, is 25% profit margin a fair margin for a basic necessity? A third objection is the uh, average lifetime earnings standard determines an unjust price on average. But society should sometimes be willing to pay more for a drug. Generic drug prices will be low, so we can afford to buy some very expensive drugs. That is true. But we're all going to be over that 70000 That's what those new hemophilia drugs, a potential Alzheimer, that's what that says. They're just going to swamp what we have. There's no cancer drug now that starts out less than $120,000. And let me remind you, right, a quarter of this room is going to have cancer, right? Probably more of this room is going to have cancer. A quarter of this room's, you know, we're going to die of cancer. That's just the numbers, right? You're going to throw in 140000 for each of us. We're going to blow off that limit. And not, by the way, now we're not talking about just one drug. They're combining them two and three drugs in those cocktails. So I want to just summarize by saying we all agree that drug prices are excessive and unjust and research and development costs don't explain the high drug prices in the United States. I've given you a framework for thinking about when drug prices would be fair and just and not excessive. And according to that standard, $70,000, $71,000 is that level. Well lower than most of the new drugs being introduced, certainly for cancer, for rheumatoid arthritis, and other things, and lower for almost all the cell and gene therapies. So we have a lot of work to do to bring those drug prices under control and make them just and not excessive. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for a superb uh, explanation of thinking. I I have become, well, the question is taking it to perhaps a almost a historical but newly appreciated understanding of wellness and things like changing our diet and exercise and other ways of empowering the body to do more of the disease fighting than looking just to what drug can be prescribed. No, no doubt about it. So just in my area, which is oncology, I don't think Leonard mentioned I'm an oncologist. Uh, yes, uh, not smoking, exercising, e- eating well, that gets you, uh, will uh, f- uh, preempt uh, 40 to 60% of uh, cancers. Absolutely. We're still all going to get some diseases and die from them. We're not immortal. No matter how much Silicon Valley would like to pursue it, we're not there yet. And so we are going to be using drugs. And so this analysis is focusing on that issue. Uh, Yes, Dr. Manuel, thank you for a great presentation. Uh, Many people in this room know me. My name is Richard Fallon. I had a long career here at RAND. I mention that because my question is not uh, uh, from my RAND work, but rather an affiliation I have now since retiring at RAND. I'm on the board of JDRF, which is a type 1 diabetes research foundation. And in that role, I've learned quite a bit about insulin pricing and the effects on the T1D community. So if it just uh, 30 seconds, provide a little context for my question uh, for the audience. 
type 1 diabetes affects about 1 in 0.25, 1.3 million, about 0.5 of the population, 0.5%. Insulin prices have been skyrocketing. It, insulin is a, um, a drug, a miracle drug invented 100 years ago, uh, discovered 100 years Almost ago. Almost 100, exactly. In ni- 1920. 20. And in 1920, and since that time, it's been mass-produced all over the world. It's synthetically uh, produced, I think, in the 1960s. It's, it's no, no, a, no, 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 no. In the 1980s. 1980s, sorry, yeah, thank yeah. you. Gene, okay. Gene, Right. Genetically right. produced. Yeah. So now everywhere else in the world, in all Western European economies, uh, this drug is provided at almost no cost right. to participants. Whereas in this country, uh, the average cost of insulin uh, is about $40,000 a year. Now, Well, uh, that's not just the insulin. It's, insulin well, no, just syringes the, the whole yeah, the whole, the whole schmear. Yeah. But the okay. key point so I what's the question? The, the, here's the question. It's a type of drug that is life-sustaining, type 1 diabetes. You die if you don't have insulin. And so it's not a drug to postpone the onset of a disease or an improve. Right, uh, right. Now, the th- now, in those types of drugs, uh, are there efforts uh, to identify uh, for those particular types of drugs that are required for life – um, that are low cost, because we haven't talked much about the cost of producing a drug as much about as the price of, of the drugs itself, uh, of, uh, of price regulation to prevent, um, uh, you know, price escalation when the, the margin on a drug like that, so, so that to prevent okay, some tragic so, cases. Okay, so I think I got it. Um, so uh, the issue with, with uh, insulin is a complicated issue, um, our current secretary of HHS was head of uh, Eli Lilly uh, when the prices skyrocketed. Eli Lilly is actually the company that learned first how to mass produce it, and they have uh, a substantial amount. And what they have done is, you know, they've packaged it in syringes and then charged you, you know, for the prepackaged price, and they've done a lot of shenanigans. Uh, it's not a fancy way. They've made it easier to use but charged a premium price for it and jacked up by re- restricting competition and, and doing other things, jacked up the price for it. This is quite common now in uh, even in the generic market where you have a uh, restricted number of producers and people jack up the price. So the question is, are there other things that the government can do on those kind of agents? Um, the current head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, is trying to make it easier for people to come in and produce those drugs. There's a new uh, generic company that's going to try to start competing uh, for drugs where we have shortages on them to try to reduce the bottlenecks and therefore the uh, ability to price gouge, basically. Um, So those are, I mean, I think all those are very important. We need a comprehensive approach to this. I've been focusing on the uh, expensive brand name drugs because that's, I think, if we can get our hands around that, um, I think we can have a framework, a negotiating framework that would apply more broadly. Um, but, you know, you're just highlighting that even in the uh, in an area where we've had the drug and it's generic, we still have a huge problem. And I agree. You just kind of started on it now, and it was in one of your very last um, uh, slides. But there seems to be a bit of um, math missing uh, because – we should, if we don't have people playing with packaging, be able to get for very little money the stuff that was patented blockbuster drugs of 25 years ago. And there's a difference between hep C, which 25 years ago you just had it, and now there's a very expensive patented pill that uh, cures it, that cures it, 
and it's expensive. Uh, there isn't some other thing you can fall back on. And uh, uh, so, what's uh, the question? Oh, the the difference between that and ulcers, where there are really very cheap things, and then there's new things that are ten percent better, or some of the yeah, cancer yeah, yeah. things, which are two hundred thousand dollars, but ten percent better yeah. than a. So, what's the question? Ha- how it would seem like that? the math would be very different for those two situations. No, I don't think the math should be any different. And I think the, the question is, um, certainly on the patented brand name drugs, right, you have, should have value-based pricing. Now, you might want to say, look, that's true for a brand name drug, but we might have generics that cure people, right, and we don't want their price to spike. Yeah, and maybe penicillin will still cure people for some illnesses, and we don't want to see their price going up, even though it's curative. All right, we can talk in different terms about generics uh, that have been around for a long time and brand name drugs. Fine. But the fact is that we have, you know, 90% of prescriptions are uh, written on uh, uh, our generics and 10% are brand name, and they account for 75% of the drug costs, those 10%. So that's where the action is in terms of drug prices. That's why my analysis refers to those drug prices. Are there anomalies like insulin, like thalidomide, by the way, which is now back treating cancer? Yes. But that's not where the big action is. The big action is on the new drugs developed and having these super high prices. Some people would say that uh, the value of art is in the eye of the beholder. I'm just wondering... That's why we're at RAND, because we're not talking about art. Right. (laughs) Right. But you're talking about a market, a world uh, that we all live in, most people, I would guess, here in the audience would pay uh, substantially more than the fair price to receive these drugs. How does that play in to the policy issues, to the – I told you, easy question, last. <laughs> no, no, look, look. First of all, most of the people in the audience don't earn $2.27 million, right? And they're, they have a different set point. That's the first – comment. Uh, As a society, you don't want to set your policies based upon the rich 2%. Okay? The second point I would make is even those in the audience, and I have not done a wallet biopsy of anyone in the audience, (laughs) even those in the audience, there are very few of you who could easily and comfortably write a $140,000 check year after year after year. Right? So you're not actually paying for it. We're paying for it. And I think this is lost on all those groups, especially patient advocacy groups, who said, well, the patient perspective should be primary. No, the patient perspective is important. I want a treatment. Absolutely. I get it. Right? When I have an illness, I want a treatment. I have kids who have illnesses, and believe me, I've had a rigmarole for the last year. I want a treatment. But I also remember... I'm not actually paying that bill. Someone else is paying that bill. We're all paying that bill. And our perspective matters. And my, you know, it's easy for you to say, I want that drug, right? It's a much different say, well, I'm not sure I want to spend the drug on you, you know? I'm not sure I want to spend a $140,000 check for you. We have to make the decision. This idea that you're the patient and your perspective should reign, that's wrong. We're all paying, because none of us can afford that 140000 without everyone else chipping in. 
And so I'm very willing to have the patient perspective there, but I want everyone else's perspective there. And by the way, nothing in this talk should be construed as saying, I don't want the, I want the next cure for cancer. I'm an oncologist, right? What did I do all that time? I tried to cure people. I want them to figure out a cure for cancer. That's very different than saying, oh, it's fine to charge whatever you want for it. Those are two different issues. I want the cure, and we need a fair price because there's a lot of other things I want to do in my life, and I think you want to do in your life. That's the difference. And if we charge $2.5 million, which is more than the average lifetime earnings of people, can't go on. Thank you very much. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.